Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Today, I talk to Jeff Oliver, all about the business of laundromats. Jeff acquired two laundromats about two years ago and has grown them nicely. He shares his numbers, the way to think about acquiring one, buying versus building, laundromat strategy, industry trends, the concept of a zombie mat. We get into the weeds. Jeff really delivered. So if you've ever passed that laundromat in your city and wondered what it's like to own it, this interview with Jeff sheds a lot of light. Enjoy Laundromats 101 with Jeff Oliver. Jeff Oliver, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Excited to be here. Jeff, you are the owner of two laundromats outside Austin, Texas. And I'm very excited to have this conversation because laundromats are a hot topic on, on Twitter, on SMB Twitter. So, but I've never actually had a guest on or actually even talked to somebody who's, who's the owner of, uh, who's a laundromat acquisition entrepreneur. So, so I'm eager to get in uh, to how it works and the numbers and the laundromat business. Start us off, Jeff. Uh, just some some quick history on you. What was your what's your professional background, and and what was the path that led you to to go out and acquire a couple of laundromats? Yeah, uh, thanks, Will. So I started my professional career uh, end of two thousand or middle of two thousand fourteen at a regional bank out of Houston. The commercial uh, bank did a lot of rotations, so you did different types of lending, learned from some of the experts, and figured out what you wanted to do. One of the very first groups I, I went through was our SBA department, where we did exclusively SBA lending. And uh, the very first deal that they let me put my hands on was a business acquisition for aftermarket parts for uh, muscle cars. So think of the guys that love up, you know, upgrading their, their Mustangs and Camaros. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it was fascinating. I got to touch every single part of the deal and uh, it opened my eyes to, wow, oh my goodness, you can go buy a business. And uh, so the leader of that group at the time, he was huge into the search fund model. This was you know, 2014. So I don't think it got the same exposure that it did today. In mm-hmm. Houston, there's a couple of them. We got to meet them, stay close to them. And so... I've kept in touch with these guys since 2014. You know, I've probably done uh, throughout my history in the bank now, I've probably done upwards of, of 10 SBA business acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them didn't go all the way through, some of them to the last minute, but really got an experience of, of what that looks like, what to look out for, how to structure a deal, how to talk to sellers and, and learn what is important to the seller, the buyer, and the bank. And uh, in 2019, got the chance to do my own. So mm-hmm. went through with it. And I think we'll get into the details on that as well. Cool. So you, you in seeing these SBA acquisitions, it whet your appetite and intrigued you. Uh, and you, you kind of said to yourself, uh, I, I want in. Had you had any entrepreneurial inclinations before this in your life? Absolutely. Um, you hear about the guys with the little lemonade stands all the time. Uh, one of my best friends and I started a, uh, a bike repair shop where I promise we repaired every single bicycle in our neighborhood growing up. Mm-hmm. So we've definitely done a little bit of entrepreneurial stuff. Um, I- I've realized I've had a couple of opportunities that I started from scratch and I just never really built something that that could grow expansively. And so I thought, 
you know what, the, the things that excite me are how to make something better, not just make it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really kind of leaned on the SBA and the business acquisition side of, well, somebody's already found a product market fit. What are they doing that you think that, you know, your business or your finance expertise could come in and do better? And um, the acquisition world is rife with that. Yeah. Well, you were also seeing these models, these, these, your clients who are, who are doing it successfully. And I, I think in all of life, like seeing other people do something successfully, like makes the path seem more, more available. And, and that's actually a big part of acquiring minds is, 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 is showing people success stories. I mean, I, I remember when I first kind of got exposed to the idea of business acquisition, it just didn't seem, yeah, of course I knew businesses were bought and sold, but I just thought it was you know, I don't know, private equity people or or kind of really high level, lots of money being transacted. But I, this lower middle market, the, the fact that an independent acquisition entrepreneur would do it, um, I just needed to see a few real stories to to believe it. Obviously, now I'm a believer. <laughs> I talk to people all the time doing it, but uh, it certainly helps a lot get somebody excited about a path when they when there's a model in front of them. Spot on. Cool. All right. So so. The laundry. So, so did you go looking for a business to buy? Did you go looking specifically for laundromats? Like, how did how did your search unfold? Yeah. So, to me, uh, this question actually uh, kind of reminded me that when I started this path, I wasn't looking for a business. I was looking for investment real estate with a friend. At um, you know, at this time, it was probably two thousand late seventeen, early eighteen. Um, Austin was definitely high on the map at that time. I was uh, still down in San Antonio and I was saying, man, you know, San Antonio is, I, I think we're here before the rocket takes off. Let's look at real estate just outside of the major markets and see if we can kind of play the growth that's on its way. Um, we actually found one of the two locations of the laundromat that I took over on LoopNet, not even Biz by Sell, mm-hmm. uh, dug through the financials, talked to the owner and realized, Man, this guy thinks this is a real estate play. This is an operational play. He's he's literally a landlord that is just you know got some laundry equipment in here. He has no idea how he could turn this thing around, or nor any interest. So, uh, kind of talking through it with my buddy and the the seller, realized I I think I want to operate your business. I don't think I want to buy your real estate. Long story short, my buddy ended up backing out. Said if it's not real estate, I'm not interested. The uh, seller said, well, if you're willing to buy the business and pay me rent because I need some cash flow for another business I've got, uh, yeah, we can come up with a deal. Ended up structuring a business buyout with a long-term lease. Took that to uh, my SBA lender, who was a friend of mine who I actually used to work with, and uh, said, look, uh, I think this fits all of your criteria. It's going to give it to me at at a better multiple. I know there's no real estate involved. Uh, can we get comfortable around that? And you know, the SBA guarantee really helps banks get pretty comfortable with that, and then gives a borrower like me longer terms. I'll sure, I'm sure we'll go kind of deeper into that. But honestly, I had no intention of getting into laundromats. I just fell in love with the idea of um, asset utilization, and I'll talk more about that later. And just really loved that idea, and the pieces kind of fell together so that. Here I am, a laundromat owner now. 
But Jeff, if you if you really liked the business that was in this in the real estate, but you'd initially been looking for real estate, why not grab them both? D- did the economics make not make sense for what he wanted for the building? If if that's the way you were going to go, so it only it only was an attractive deal if you just bought the business. Spot on. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> to be completely frank, he he'd probably agree with you on this that his uh, purchase price for the real estate was more like it was already part of San Antonio or Austin. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, I think to give an idea, I think the cap rate had come out to like six and a half percent on a single use facility out in the middle of, uh, this one was Blanco, Texas, if, if anyone knows where that is. Oh, so and where is just, that? You, like you told me 40 minutes outside Austin. Yeah. 40 miles west of Austin, uh, 48 miles dead north of San Antonio. So if you're following I-35, it's the part that matches the triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, 35 is your hypotenuse. Mm-hmm. I'm using that right. I haven't heard that word for a while. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we basically agreed. He said, I, I like real estate. I, I really don't want to sell it. If I'm going to sell it, it's going to be at a premium, but I need cash. So if you're willing to sign a lease agreement with me, I'll make a deal with you on the price. And so I think everybody ended up winning on that. Okay. So you take it to your to, to your lender, a colleague and friend from your own lending days, um, and you, you get the you get the loan and you buy the business. So the, and this is just the one of or so, was, this was the pair as uh, was a pair. Okay, yeah, I, I should probably clear it up just a little bit during mm-hmm. the uh, negotiations. And by the time the, the seller is extremely friendly the entire time, um, his motivation for selling, which I think is a key aspect to any deal, is that um, he had actually moved out of San Antonio, moved down to the coast, and was starting a completely different business that was growing so fast he needed a huge infusion of capital. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, I'm not here. I'm not really paying attention to these businesses that I've got over here. Let me sell them and just go ahead and focus on this business. So as we're talking, as he realizes I care more about the operations, he goes, hey, just so you know, there's another laundromat that is also for sale about 30 miles away. If you're willing to take both, uh, we, we can probably negotiate a deal. So <laughs> we go from one teeny tiny little laundromat that's about 1,500 square feet to two that are 30 miles away from one another. And now we're looking at it thinking, okay, how does this make sense? Um, you know, I, I shadowed him for 30 days with a, a letter of intent in place. And realized how he was doing it, how his uh, key employee was kind of getting it done and said, you know what, this doesn't make sense as a one-off. I, I need to buy both of these. Well, will we work, can you work a deal with me that if I buy them together, you come up with a better price? He goes, you're saving me so much headache. We'll come up with a better price and uh, let's just sign a lease on both of them and you handle the the day-to-day and make it easy for me to, to be absentee and and we're best friends. And so what that ended up looking like is I operate the laundromats now. He's uh, a landlord on both of them. The one in Blanco is a single tenant facility. The other one's a multi-tenant facility strip center. I manage a lot of the uh, general maintenance of the area, just kind of keeping the place okay. And so not the quite enti- a the entire manager. The entire strip center or just your just your um your piece 
So I manage everything inside of my four walls. And then there's a lot of shared facilities. So think of the water, the electricity that kind of goes through to some of it. I keep all of that on track, make sure it's maintained or call the professionals that can do a better job than I can. Mm -hmm. And so that in, uh, in commercial real estate terms, it's a triple net lease. So he's basically hands off. He's not worried about if a roof leak happens, if we've got uh, a power outage or like during the freeze when some of the pipes busted, I took on the the headache of managing that. And he passed that through to me with a better lease agreement and a, a better purchase price. Okay. And so give us a sense of the, the size of these businesses. You said that the first one is 1500 square feet. So how many washer and dryers does that, does that uh, equate to? And tell us what the other one is as well. And then, and then revenue, what does that mean for revenue? Yeah. So I think my deal is a little bit smaller than a lot of your uh, other guests, but mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a strength because I'm excited to share that if you don't mind getting your hands dirty, there's deals of all sizes. And I'm sure you'll hear a million people on uh, the SMB Twitter say, sometimes you're not buying a business, you're buying a job. Sure. And I, I think I did. And so to kind of organize my thoughts here, Revenue when I purchased was just north of 200,000 between the two of them. Mm -hmm. One was doing, uh, the one in Blanco was just shy of 100,000, I think 95. And then the one in Startsville, for anybody who's really familiar with Texas, this is just south of Canyon Lake, or about 20 miles west of New Braunfels. Okay. That one was doing about 120,000 in revenue. And uh, at the time, he was probably right around sixty-five dollars to $70,000 of earnings after we adjusted for the rent payment. And so um, I, when I got in there, he really had become a passive owner. He had a key employee in place that was doing a lot, but that I, I didn't think that I could manage. So it was very early on that we had to figure some things out. So they're they're doing together just north of two hundred, and then you've got yep. sixty or seventy in earnings, and that's after this employee. Did you did you say? Correct. Yeah. So that's true. Uh, I would call it EBITDA or uh, truly an SDE, settlers discretionary earnings. Uh, during the time he was a, a Schedule C, so he didn't pay himself a salary. He just took net income home for himself, mm -hmm. and so. Um, one location has 17 washers and 11 dryers. The other location had, at the time, 21 washers and 18 dryers. Uh, can't do the math in my head right now on, on what that is together, but about uh, just shy of 100 uh, machines in total between the two of them. And so when we did the math, he was the, the metric that I think most people will use is turns per day. So how many uh, utilization or how many times your machines are being utilized. Yep. And uh, three turns per day is pretty low on any industry average. And being the only laundromats on a 25-mile radius, to me, it said, why? What's going on here? That this You should be knocking it out of the park. Day one, you should be at five or six turns. So we get into the weeds a little bit and find out that uh, just basically they're not doing as much as they can for customer service. So a few customers maybe uh, would leave because, you know, a, a change machine would eat a dollar and they'd say, well, we can't get there in time. Sorry, it's a dollar. And 
to that customer, it's not the dollar that matters as much as the, they didn't answer my call right away. I called three times and got sold anyways. I couldn't get a dollar. This, this doesn't feel great. Yeah. So there are some things day one that let us, uh, that let me come in and say, okay, let's just win these customers back. Let's, you know, advertise that there's new management on site. Let's learn what the key employee is doing right, what we can do a little bit better, or uh, find out why, what's stopping them from doing that. And so I'm excited to talk about kind of what that looks like and, and where we go from there. But um, yeah, so the biggest things we did day one on that was... Uh, wait, wait, Jeff, let me pause you and right. just ask. So how did, yeah. you, how did you learn what was wrong with the business? Were there like Yelp reviews for these laundromats or was the, was the seller transparent and he's like yeah i don't you know take the best care of my customers so that you know if you did that better <laughs> you'd probably have more repeat business like how did you uncover these opportunities for customer service improvement yeah thank you um all of the above is probably the right answer so you know i i did at the end of it i was probably 65 days of shadowing between him and his key employee so i got to see a lot of the operations as it happened uh, I came on site. I did my own laundry there a couple of times just to feel what it was like as a customer. Mm -hmm. I definitely found the Yelp, the Google reviews, and just you know talk to customers. Is hey, how long have you been coming here? What do you like about it? And, and kind of learned about those pieces of it so that day one, I I pretty much formulated a plan of okay, well that needs to change right away, or okay, that doesn't sound great, but it's not going to be you know business ending issues. So just, it, it gave me a plan to come in day one of, okay, when I have the keys, what am I going to do differently? Yeah. And I imagine kind of the more you found out that was wrong with it, assuming nothing was so wrong with it, that was unfixable, that it was unfixable. The more you found out that was wrong with it, that was fixable, the better the opportunity seemed to you because that's, that's your upside. You nailed it. Uh, I can't remember which guest it was, but somebody came on uh, not too long ago that said, uh, you want to find something that's not running perfectly, right? Yeah. <laughs> you want to find, <laughs> and uh, because that's your opportunity to grow it. So the more that I learned like those, the more I was excited about it because to me, there were quick implementations that show the customers and show the employees, hey, we're serious about making this a place that you want to show up and do your laundry or uh, you know, just get out of the summer heat for a couple of hours, which is actually a big part of the, the business too. Hmm. So. Well, I guess you knew since there were, each machine was just doing three turns a day and the industry average should, or, you know, kind of your industry benchmark should be five or six. You knew like where you should be and kind of what that Delta was that you could realistically achieve, which was almost twice, you know, you could, in theory, kind of, you should be doubling the revenue. So that's, that probably seemed like a, giant uh, opportunity for growth to you. And given that there weren't other laundromats for miles, like you should be doing better than the industry average probably. Spot on. Yeah. And so I know one thing that you wanted to bring up when we get into the, the details is how does an urban versus rural location yeah. um, really affect that? And yeah, I think even on a rural location, like these small towns, even if you can't be better than the industry average just because the population won't uh, um, support it, mm -hmm. you could still be right at the industry just because, I mean, the economics across the, the United States just show that if your population fits this demographic, you should be in this range. If you're not, 
that's not on the statistics. That's on you as the operator. So it, it gave me a lot of confidence to finally go forward and say, I think my downside for the most part is mitigated here. It's how do I capture some of the upside? Yeah. Great. Well, that's, that's what you want in a deal. Limited downside, all upside. So can you tell us what the acquisition looked like, what the terms of the acquisition were? Gladly. Yeah. So um, originally we were looking at around, um, he, I think he wanted 350,000 for both of them at the same time. And uh, his math was one and a half times revenue. And so it was a little bit of explanation, explaining to him how I wanted to look at it as an investor, how anybody else would. And um, to be frank, this deal probably died three times before we got it done, just because there was just, but between every, I mean, this was a friendly acquisition. We were friends the whole time. It was just, hey, these are my numbers. Those are yours. Uh, Doesn't make sense. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. I, I think the market kind of told him I'm probably the best buyer in that I know he received one or two other offers at maybe half of what we ended up on. And so it makes me sound crazy, but I was just confident that I could grow this thing. And, and my purchase price was second in command or second to what the uh, cash flow could be. Mm-hmm. So, so we ended up at a final purchase price for both of them of 300,000. The bank wanted 20% down from me. So 60,000. Um, day one, we knew that there was some equipment in there. So there was a little bit of um, a representation or a warranty, I think is the right word for it, where he guaranteed that if the AC or two of the large machines broke within the first six months, he would cover half of the payment. Mm-hmm. And like clockwork, they waited until seven months to break. <laughs> so <laughs> we actually put some uh, working capital in place just to, to worry about anything like that. So the entire deal, total project cost was uh, $330,000. So I funded the 20%, and then I ended up putting the working capital in myself. So uh, just shy of $90,000 out of my pocket for this. And um, the multiple is kind of strange because we bought off of uh, of mid-year. So the year before, he had done right at $60,000 after adjusting for the rent, and we were on pace to do about $75,000 for uh, 2019, if I remember right. Yeah, I bought in 19. So 18 had done 60,000 and 19 was on pace to do 75. So between a four and a five X multiple, which, you know, now being in the industry and, and understanding a business of this size, I would say is on the high end. But knowing what I knew I could do day one, knowing just how stable his revenue had been and, and kind of the growth mode that he was in due to the the growth of population around the area, I could justify the price to myself. And uh, just to give you guys an idea, since then, we've probably increased revenue uh, 50 to 60% since then. And um, it's just really helped kind of justify paying a little bit of a premium at, at what the, at the time. So you, you paid four to five X and and the kind of industry norm would have been more, I assume, between three and four X, something like that. Of this size, yeah. You, it, and I really think that more than earnings, the uh, quality of the equipment you're buying matters at this size. Because yeah. if you yeah. buy on earnings, but then you have to go basically spend 
twice the earnings to, to retool the entire uh, facility, then the price doesn't matter as much as how much cash is coming out in total. So in this case, all but you know three pieces of equipment, one being a non-revenue non producing piece of equipment were in great shape. So I was okay buying the premium uh, off of that, knowing that I didn't have a huge CapEx layout in the first few years. So the the machines were in good shape, even though some conked out at, right at seven months. Yeah, out of the, I think we're just shy of uh, 40 machines and uh, washing machines in total. I would say 38 of them were in great shape. Two of them have been, uh, I, I joked with them, but they literally were old enough to be in college. So they, uh, they, they had definitely gotten their money's worth out of those machines. And uh, we got to the point that finding repairs or finding repair parts were getting more expensive. So within the, you know, like I said, around month seven, we just um, got them out of there, junked them and brought in two brand new machines. And since then have upgraded some others, but those were the, the maintenance CapEx versus the growth CapEx, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what have you done? So you had your list of things that you were going to go in and improve that made you feel confident that you could pay a bit of a premium, that there was a lot of upside here. And indeed, two years later, you've increased revenue 50 to 60%. So what were some of those things? What did you get in there and do? Yeah. So day one, we installed automatic locks. Uh, the key employee was waking up and driving up to each of these laundromats every day at 7 a.m to go unlock the doors and then come back every day at 9 p.m. to lock the doors. And uh, poor gal, she she was working. I mean, she could not take a vacation because she was responsible for this key aspect of the business. And so day one, we installed automatic locks that let us open earlier, close later to get those extended hours for folks that maybe work different shift work and needed to come in at 9.30 p.m. We put in an automated call system so that if somebody called and one of us wasn't available right away, they got a text response and uh, a callback number so that it felt like even though uh, customer service couldn't be there all the time right away, that somebody was listening and would, would call them back. So that helps with our customer attention, customer service. And, uh, and those, thing, those calls just would go to your phone and you'd just call people back as soon as you could. Or, yeah. uh, so we've got three people now that the calls would route to depending on location or issue. So oh. uh, we've got a, a system called Grasshopper, which, yeah, you can just partner with your phone or do it from your laptop. And as, oh my goodness, it has saved us so much headache on, on dealing with uh, customer issues. And so we've done those two aspects. Day one, we included a mobile payment because um, if somebody jams a quarter or something like that, it would require somebody to show up and physically return a quarter or unjam the, the change machine. So now we've partnered with a, a company online called PayRange that lets you pay directly from your phone. And more importantly, lets us send refunds from the phone so we don't have to drive somebody to a location and uh, allows us to still be um, partially attended versus a full service attendance. Are you still accepting quarters? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's one thing uh, I think any laundromat person should look at is what is the norm for your customers, and if you if you are in a quarter heavy industry, maybe just the the people use a lot of cash in the area. 
if you're going to switch to card, just know how that may affect their user experience. So the machines are able to accept quarters. We still have an ATM and a change machine on site. But uh, for the quote unquote tech savvy folks, uh, we do offer the mobile payments just as easily. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Were there, were there other things or was that your list? So those are the big things. I think um, over time, we are transitioning more into, so when I took over them, it's self-serve. Uh, we've started doing wash folds. And then the one other aspect that I think um, not too many people think of, but the sheer amount of lost and found clothes that we had was becoming overwhelming. Uh, people would, I guess, you know, go run an errand, leave six loads of clothes in the dryers and um, just be gone for six hours. And, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to take those clothes out and fingers crossed that they don't decide that they need their clothes more than you did. So we put in some lost and found lockers where if the employees were cleaning, they noticed that those clothes had been sitting in there 20 minutes. We put them in a locker. And if somebody called and said, hey, I was here last night, I totally zonked out and forgot my clothes. No problem. Describe them to us. Yep, they're in this locker. Here's your code. Hope you have a great day. Cool. And so just tiny things like that that would really make customer service very different. And so did you, in addition to growing revenues, did you start to see uh, positive reviews show up on the internet? Yeah, we're not perfect by any means, but um, I think the prior owner had like a 2.4 star review on Google. and we've consistent- 2.4, you said? 2.4, correct. Uh, has consistently been above 4.4, as high as you know, 4.9 for a while too. So I think we're doing some things right. <laughs> nice. So you've you've pushed up revenue quite a bit. Um, how are margins? Has 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 the uh, margin increased as well, or decreased, or what? So this is my absolute favorite part about this business. Is I think asset utilization as a function is you have a very fixed set of costs. And then um, every time that something else is increased on that, it usually goes right above that. So for washers, your only variable costs are the few gallons of water it uses and uh, you know a little bit of electricity. And since we're out in the hill country, we use propane for our heating supply. And then you know I put uh, 10% of every sale we get, I put in towards a, a repair and maintenance or CapEx fund. So mm-hmm. for me, it's, you know, uh, let's call it uh, 18% in utilities, another 10% in uh, the repair fund, which is still cash right now, right? Because we haven't spent it today. And the rest of it is, I, I use the term contribution margin, which means that out of that uh, 28 cents, the other 72 cents can go to pay fixed costs. So, you know, I've got my loan payment, I've got rent, we've got labor, which is a fixed expense in my mind, because regardless if you got one person in there or 50, I still want the same amount of labor kind of keeping an eye on the place. Yep. So once you get over your hurdle rate of fixed costs, now for every additional dollar you make, 72 cents can be used to kind of figure out what to do next. And so basically that 50% revenue growth is all going to contribution margin, which lets us really focus on what can we do to really grow these things? Uh, where can we expand? And and that's what I love about asset heavy businesses or um, 
businesses where you focus on the utilization of the asset is uh, once you get over those fixed expenses, you know, it really starts to, to generate some serious cash. That's great. That's that's really cool. Thank you for that explanation. That was that was exactly the sort of breakdown that I was looking for. What what are some of the um, the other things that we can talk about? Other ways that you can break down this industry for people, Jeff. So here in my notes that we exchange in advance, um, we talk about like the, t- the types of laun- I talked about the types of laundromats size, but I'll let you break it down. Like how if I'm someone interested in this business, like how should I think about this? What are the most important factors, location, size, all that stuff? Break it down for for me if you would. Yeah. So I think the very, very first thing that you should look at on one of these things is the sheer size of the laundromat that you're going to buy. I have tiny laundromats. So there is literally no more growth that I can do. The only thing I can hope is that more people are patiently waiting to use the, the washer after the last person, right? I can only yeah. grow through more turns. More turns. Where, yeah, I think the industry has moved towards big box. So if you come to Austin and you just Google search laundromats, you'll see that anything built in the last 10 years is massive, meaning probably five to 7,000 square feet. What that allows you to do is take advantage more of those um, uh, contribution margins that, you know, if you've got a fixed cost, you've got rent, maybe rent doesn't go up as much and maybe the distributors give you a better price per uh, washer so that your fixed costs on a unit basis are much lower. And that if you've got employees that are able to kind of run that shop, you're going to have some awesome unit economics. But with the size also comes the price, right? So if you want to stay smaller, definitely just make sure it's in an area that can support a minimum of you know, five turns per day, which I think is is a really uh, interesting aspect of, of how to look at these. Um, I think that the second most important part is you'll hear the term self-service versus full-service laundromats. And yeah. what does that mean? And so for me, Right now, we are partially attended, so we're moving towards a full service as the demand allows us to. And so a self-service is customers come in, they wash, they fold their own clothes, and maybe they buy some detergent from you, but they get out. They really don't have a need for any type of interaction besides maybe customer service issues. Full service is they're dropping their clothes off, you're washing, separating, uh, treating stains, cleaning. Some people even do dry cleaning, which is separate from laundromats, Um, but it adds a high level of service. Uh, If you do it right, it can be very high margin, but it requires a lot more employee labor, uh, a higher level of insurance, and just a lot more uh, cost day one and a lot more uh, operating excellence because now you're managing not just machines, but managing people from a customer and an employee perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think anybody coming into the industry re- really needs to understand if I'm acquiring full service, do I have that management experience and expertise? Or if I'm coming in and doing self-service, do I have a way that I can hold on full service laundry to really grow this? So to me, those are the two biggest aspects. Um, the last part that I don't think is talked about enough is acquisition versus building. And Laundry is a really unique piece because uh, large cities, Austin, I'll give you as an example, has a lot of regulation on permitting right now. 
So it's actually cost prohibitive to go build a brand new laundromat. I think um, anybody who's out there searching should look up the term sewer impact fees. And sewer impact city- fees. Yeah, sewer impact fees. And what that is, is the city or maybe the water regulator of the, the city is going to make an estimate based on what you provide them of how much water you plan to use and how much water they're going to have to bring into their treatment facility. And they're actually going to charge you for that up front before you even build your building. And right now, it's been a while since I've, I've checked the numbers, but I think it was something like uh, $25,000 per washing machine or some just astronomical number where it, it just doesn't make sense to build these things anymore. So there's a little bit of a floor on the existing locations because it's a lot cheaper to retool them versus build out the, the infrastructure. So anybody who's looking in the industry, I would think just make sure to talk to a distributor or somebody who's actually a, a general contractor that's built these things and, and can kind of guide you in the right direction of just how expensive it may be to start from scratch. Uh, I think those are really the big key aspects of it. The uh, only thing is location. Again, I've built out in the rural areas, but since then I've looked at more urban areas. And what does that demographic change look like? How does that uh, affect the type of service you're going to provide? And I honestly, (laughs) looking at both, I think I prefer the rural areas now. Why is that? Uh, For me, the competition piece of it. It just doesn't make sense to have two laundromats in a small town. So especially as a first-time acquirer, knowing that mistakes would be made, it I don't know a better way to say it, but it, it kind of stink. It felt nice to say, I messed up, but what are you going to do? Drive 30 miles or forgive yeah. me? And yeah. uh, so it it really helped to, to get me comfortable with acquiring these things to know that you kind of have some pretty sticky customers and you can make a mistake or two along the way. You know, I wonder though, in like a city, so I live in San Francisco and there's a laundromat on Ocean Avenue, which is near where I live. And uh, say I used that laundromat and something bad happened at the laundromat, like whatever I was, it was a bad experience. The next nearest laundromat is still, um, while it's it's not 30 miles away, like it would be in your case, it's still as an urban dweller, probably too far away for me to, for me to want to, like, it's the difference between having to get in my car and not. And that's a big, you know, that's a big point of friction. So even though the distances aren't as, you know, 30 miles, uh, you know, like in Texas, in a city there, you know, even the difference of a half a mile can be, can, can basically mean a captive audience or not. You were spot on to give a, a reference here in Austin, where I live. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but I bet somebody familiar can tell exactly where I am. There's a laundromat walking distance from me, but the owner has absolutely zero interest in in running this thing. It's the true definition of a zombie mat. I think he's got. (laughs) Is that an an industry term? It is. Yeah, you'll you'll hear the distributors use that term a lot too, and it basically means it's not quite dead, but it ain't quite living either. And so, (laughs) uh, those are usually the places that are ripe for opportunity for serious investor to come in and, and turn it around because the uh, infrastructure is good, but the machines need work, but they're usually already in a solid location. But to give you an example, he's got maybe three out of his 15 washers that work. So not even half of his machines are on. And sure enough, every Sunday, he's still got people using those three machines, yeah. but not even 
a half mile away, there's a large, uh, let's call it the big box retailer version of laundromats. And I mean, they've got their own parking lot. They're right next to a grocery store and they, they are the Chick-fil-A of washing. I mean, they've got people <laughs> in and out all day long. And so uh, I, I really do think that competition matters on an area like that, yeah. but you are right that there is even a half mile distance can, can mean the difference for somebody's and I'm still going to come here. You know, the other thing that strikes me about what you just said is that the fact that there is a phrase in the industry uh, for super absentee, super passive, you know, underinvested in laundromats, this zombie mat concept tells me that, it, that it's probably pretty common. Um, and, and so that would seem like there's opportunity. If this is an industry where you have a lot, you know, where some significant percentage of the businesses are just, are just neglected, that, that seems like, um, that's an industry ripe for, you know, ambitious to people to come in like you did and, 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 you know, do interesting things with these, these neglected businesses. So um, what about the, going back to the very top, you, you had said the thing about buying a job. Um, and in your case, you did buy a job. You, so how, how should, how should somebody think about that? Should, to do this right, to do, to do it well and not become, you know, a zombie mat yourself, do you need to be doing this um, as a job, doing it full-time? Uh, I, I come back and forth on that. And I think for me, it made sense to, to quote unquote, buy a job. And I consider myself the general manager, but I also like learning how these things work. So for the first three months, I, I enjoyed tinkering. I still do, but it was a lot more fun when it wasn't so, um, uh, metho- not methodical, but I, I end up doing a lot of the same repairs now. But mm-hmm. as I learned how the machines worked, uh, I was really fascinated. I'd find myself up there at three in the morning just because I, I wanted to fix one more thing instead of letting myself <laughs> go to sleep. But realistically, these as an owner, if you can really separate yourself from a general manager, if you're willing to pay for it right now, I'd rather just be both. Um, so you can, if you have somebody on site, that's great at customer service that knows a little bit about maintenance and is willing to, you know, just eat crow. If, if something happens with a customer, mm-hmm. you can kind of separate yourself as a passive owner. The thing is, is what does that look like from a cash flow perspective and what kind of required return do you need? Because, you know, at this size, I, I mean, I think we can kind of allude to the math here that, you know, you're not going to become a millionaire if you're kind of, if you're having to give away most of the, the free cash flow to another salary. Yep. So for me, it makes more sense to kind of be in the, the day-to-day, um, at least until I find the next best thing, right? Like I, I currently enjoy being in there, learning about other industries, kind of passively searching for an, another opportunity. But the day will come where I would feel confident giving my next employee the keys to everything, giving him a raise and saying, look, only call me if this place is on fire. I trust you. I'll see you in a month kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think if you've got the operational excellence, you're willing to take a little bit of a haircut on cash flow. Yeah, you can really run these things. Uh, I would call it semi-passively because uh, you still want to be in charge of you know the finances, uh, customer just customer reviews, some of those things, but you don't need to be boots on the ground every single day to run these things successfully. Okay. And let me just understand the employees. You've now touched on this a number of times. So you have somebody on site 
all all for all opening hours somebody is there no no and that's the uh that's probably one of the benefits of being in the rural town right now is <laughs> i don't know that this is completely replicable but my key employee lives 3 minutes away from one of the uh, locations and then he's uh, a 20 minute drive from the other location and then we've got part-time help that keep the place clean that kind of do some of the wash and fold and if they want to, none of them have stepped up to the plate, but they can also do some repairs for extra hours if they're ever interested. Mm-hmm. And so the key employee is really kind of what's helped me get comfortable not living so close is that he's trustworthy enough that if there's an issue with the change machine, he opens it up. We've got procedures in place that, you know, if he's feeling well, we'd find out pretty quickly, but um, he's able to kind of do a lot of that, that lets me be offsite, but also be the general manager. So still kind of get the majority of um, the, I don't know the right way to say it, but as general manager, just make sure that all the decisions are still in my hand. Yeah. But I guess to to say another way, if, if the time ever came, I think he would be the right person to step in and, and be general manager. But, and this individual is full-time? It works a little bit like that. Yeah. So I've got him paid at uh, 40 hours a week, but realistically he, he can go home in between. Like he, it's really more like he's on call, I guess yeah. is the right way to say it. Yeah. So he goes and fixes issues as they come up, but there's no reason for him to be there from six 30 in the morning to 10 o'clock every evening. And so that works for him because you know, he's got a steady paycheck. Uh, hopefully he feels like he's getting paid well. And, um, uh, it lets him have a lot more flexibility. And are is there basically running one of these or operating one of these? Is there does something come up every day at each location or multiple times a day, or can can weeks go by and the thing is just humming along and no human intervention was required? You know, I think it's it's so funny how that happens. It's like we'll go. My girlfriend and I were just talking about how the phone hadn't rang three weeks. And we thought, okay, that's strange because usually you get one kind of call about once every two weeks of just something silly. Like, I don't know, somebody clogged a toilet or a machine is spitting out bubbles. And it turns out the person used dishwash soap versus uh, uh, laundry detergent. But this week, as soon as we left town, we had three calls back to back to back, including a change machine issue. And again, these aren't things that I need to touch. And so fortunately, uh, my key employee was able to get those things resolved, but it's just funny how those kind of aspects come up all at once or not at all. So it's very lumpy on on when they come in, but yeah, it's uh, depending on what you would consider a a fire alarm. I would say about twice a month, the general manager needs to step in and do something. Okay. But uh, of the 40 hours a week that he's working for you, he, he really is um, not working 40 hours. I mean, it's a pretty comfortable uh, 40 hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say about 15 of them are sweaty work. So he likes to kind of fix the machines. He cleans up a lot. He's got an eye for detail, like nobody else to where he basically elbowed me aside one day and said, you're not allowed to clean. Here. You miss too much. <laughs> so, uh, really lucky to have him on that aspect. Yeah. But about 15 hours of, of sweaty labor, I would say five hours of quote unquote customer service. And then, um, the other quote unquote, 20 hours or yeah, just customer service if needed or 
And realistically, a lot of that time is just have your phone ready if I need you. Cool. Okay. Jeff, you've uh, you've given a lot of uh, intel here in the laundromat business. Are there any other tips or maybe pitfalls that we we haven't already touched on that somebody interested in in buying a laundromat should know? I think I just want to make sure that we reiterate two points that we briefly talked on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love talking laundromats, so there's quite a few people I've reached out to in uh, any sphere of social media, and what I think every time that I, I want to make sure that they focus on is the location that the, the laundromat's being bought in, whether that's a strip center, standalone, what's the you know half mile and two mile radius around that look like. More importantly, what's the quality of that location? Because what I've learned since starting in here is machines run great most of the time. It's the real estate that I have issues with. So leaky roofs or um, you know, busted pipes during the, the freeze that we experienced down in Texas, or even something as silly as electrical that got wired wrong because I'm in the, the country and permits aren't a thing out here. So uh, <laughs> just small things like that, that you know, if you're brand new to uh, business acquisitions and you've never experienced real estate, be very, very comfortable with that piece of it. And then the other item is... Um, Quite often, I hear people think that they're going to add a credit card machine and this thing's going to become a cash-generating passive item. I don't think that's the case for a lot of them. Uh, You really have to understand your customer preferences. And so for um, we've had the pay range for about two years now. We're still maybe at 20% adoption on that thing. People just love to use cash reporters. It's easier for them. So making sure that you are very well aware of your customer preferences can give you uh, a head start on the learning curve. That 20% though is probably specific to your demographic. So the point is to just don't take it for granted that it's going to be one way or the other. You really got to understand your customer to know what that ratio is going to be for credit card to, to hard currency. Spot on. Yeah. Uh, even just go check the Google reviews because some of the customers will, t- will beg in the reviews, man, this guy still uses borders. Would be great if they had a credit card machine on site. Well, you know, there's some demand for it day one. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Jeff, if people have other questions, how can they how can they reach you? Uh, Twitter's probably the best place to find me, uh, and that's Jeff Oliver ATX. Jeff spelled the funny way: G E O F F Oliver ATX. Otherwise, I think I'm on LinkedIn. I think I'm pretty easy to find. Not too many people with my name. Cool. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Jeff, thank you for the breakdown on the laundromat business. This was super fun and congratulations on uh, on, on getting into the business and your 50 to 60% revenue uh, increase in, in two years. So future looks bright in your, in your laundromat empire. Very excited. Thank you so much. 